Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2015 Desert Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is American Ascendancy, the Transition from British to American Dominance of the International Order. And it was recorded on March 16, 2015. So I have the fun this morning of talking with you about a book that I am just finishing writing at Hoover. And uh, what got me started writing this book was all of the talk about the rise of China and whether the rise of China could be managed peacefully or whether, like most, almost all transitions in the international order, it would be violent. That is, the reigning hegemon of the international order, the dominant state, that is us, would be replaced by force, by war. There's only one peaceful transition in the history of the state system, and that's the transition from Britain as the dominant power to the United States. And so I got curious about the, what it was about one or both of these states that made a peaceful transition possible when nobody else could manage it. Or maybe the international order was changing at the end of the 19th century, and that that's what accounts for the changing nature of it. So what I'm going to do is talk with you this morning about two examples, two moments in time, inflection points in that transition, and what I think they tell us about the international order and the way it was changing, what the lessons are for the likely transition when the United States no longer is the strongest power in the international order. And let me just say, you can put up the first slide, please. The, um, the, the, we'll get to this in a second. But the, the main things that make the British to American transition peaceful, it's very complicated. It's unlikely to be repeated. What makes it work in the British and American case is not just that Britain is looking for the opportunity to share some of their responsibilities in areas we're interested in, but there is a convergence of values that Britain becomes a democracy across this period of time, and the United States becomes a normal international power. That is one that is playing by the same rules that everyone else is. That period of time in which the United States uh, does not act like a revolutionary power is a pretty short period of time. It's only about 20 years before we start getting interested in making the world safe for democracy. And if that transition hadn't occurred in that specific time, the British likely would have contested America's rise. And I think that's actually quite a worrisome um, perspective on a, a rising China. Moreover, at the end of the day, Britain was disappointed. Even a country so similar to us in so many ways could not predict our behavior once we were the setter of the rules. And I think that's cause for caution. Okay, so two snapshots of the transition from Britain to the United States as the strongest power in the order. This is a map of what was known as the Oregon Territory. So uh, this is the northern boundary of the great state of California. This is Oregon, which was Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Montana, some of Wyoming. 
And the boundary between Britain and the United States was only demarcated as far as the Continental Divide, as far as the Rocky Mountains, right? This is British Columbia up here. The boundary was the 49th parallel. But from 1818 forward, this area from the Columbia River to the ocean was jointly administered by Britain and the United States. Neither country had sovereignty. It was largely unpopulated, so it didn't much matter. But notice this line. This is the Oregon Trail. And as Americans start emigrating west, there is the only British settlement in the area is the Hudson Bay Company, which had been wildly profitable in furs. But the furs were mostly trapped out by the time we have the Oregon crisis. Um, <coughs> so we nearly go to war with Britain over this little slice of Oregon and Washington state. In fact, uh, the, British, the, the British newspaper, The Times, uh, says that there, is no, there has been no greater cause for war, no greater casus belli between Britain and the United States than this. It's commonplace now to think of Britain and the United States as similar, right? We feel like each other. And that mass, that most of the 19th century, there was deep hostility between these two countries. Not only do we fight two wars, um, but immigration is an enormously conflictual issue, in particular, the large amount of Irish immigration to the United States. And as the Irish community begins to become politically active, settled, a normal part of the American experience, they very strongly affect government-to-government -government relations between Britain and the United States. Moreover, America in the 19th century is what Britain fears becoming. That is, what we look like to them is reckless, belligerent, illiberal, like Andrew Jackson, the caricature of Andrew Jackson is what they think we are. Demagogues and non-entities is how the British prime minister described his American counterparts. In fact, my favorite description that the British give of the United States in this period of time is a people too radical in either politics or religion to live peaceably in their original homes. Right? That's who they think we are. And by the way, they're not wrong either. That is who we are. And for Europeans, immigration to the United States was an enormous steam safety valve. That is, they exported the people who were dissatisfied in their own societies. And those people are us. Um, and even with the, the freight of slavery still legal in the United States. We're talking about 1844 here. Um, the ideological challenge of the United States to the governments of Europe is something that they were deeply unsettled about, right? We're the only successful republic in this time frame, and a huge challenge to monarchies. So the British have an interest, actually, in us failing, because then that could restrict the pressure for democracy in Britain. In 1830, only 3% of British citizens could vote in their own elections. 3%. At a time where white male suffrage was um, complete in the United States, and I realize that that may sound 
it was still the gold standard of its time and something that inspired a lot of interest. Um, Britain at this time is struggling with the Industrial Revolution, right? People are moving out of uh, rural settings and the cities of Manchester and Birmingham and London are booming. They are teeming with people who are becoming newly middle class and have no political representation. And after the French Revolution in particular, this is the consuming debate of British domestic politics. How do they make people satisfied with governing arrangements that aren't representative or change them slowly enough that they feel safe and still, um, and still prevent a revolution? To give you a sense of just how pessimistic Britain's view of its own society in 1840, the time where they're the richest, strongest, most influential state in the international order. Here's what Prime Minister Palmerston says when they are debating the reform bill that, bill that will allow more British to vote. In the present state of our general education, political morality, and starving population, a republic is infeasible. Um, in foreign policy terms at the time, the United States was largely on the periphery. We, we think of ourselves as broad-shouldered and swaggering because we win the War of 1812, but um, that's actually not what we look like to others. Uh, what we look like to others is an upstart that takes advantage of the fact that Britain is actually fighting Napoleon's France at the time. Um, and to, to take a principled stand about uh, a couple of minor issues at sea, which the British viewed as necessary war measures, and they had also ceded us the, the, they had ceased the practices by the time we declare war. So from the British perspective, they burn our capital, um, we get back in the box, and they go on with what was really important to them. The other irritant at the time is that the Monroe Doctrine, right, the very famous declaration uh, that John Quincy Adams writes as Secretary of State, that says that the United States will not stand for European colonies in the Western Hemisphere. So uh, we had been negotiating that with the British who offered, in fact, the text of what becomes the Monroe Doctrine was written by the British and offered to us as something we would jointly sign. And we took it and made it our own. Even though for the following 60 years, we didn't actually have a Navy enough to enforce it. The people who enforced the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere were the British Navy, because they too had an interest in preventing other European colonies from uh, intruding on them. So this comes to a crisis in 1844. This seems small and uninteresting, I grant you. But um, what happens is we have a presidential election in this country, and James K. Polk runs on a platform of annexing Texas, which was then an independent republic, and annexing the Oregon Territory. This is a political cartoon from the time that shows Polk asleep in bed, and he is dreaming of taking the Oregon Territory. You see the devil over there, 
and it's Andrew Jackson's face the devil is hiding behind, right? So the devil comes to Polk in the form of Andrew Jackson to say, take Oregon. And these are three of his cabinet members with please listen to me stuff on that side. The, the phrase 54-40 or fight, right? That northern line, if you think back to the map, the northern line where Alaska and Canada meet, that's 54-40. What, what the Polk administration claimed was that they were gonna take from the Rocky Mountains north to Alaska as American territory. And he gets elected on it. Um, and in his inaugural, he, he says, already our people are preparing to perfect that title by occupying it with their wives and children. To us belongs the duty of protecting them adequately wherever they may be on our soil. Um, John O'Sullivan, the journalist who coins the term manifest destiny, uh, is advising President Polk on this. And Polk makes an extraordinary argument in claiming both Mexico and, Canada, and British Columbia. The, the claim in Mexico is that the government of Mexico is incapable of keeping Americans living in Mexico safe. Therefore, that all area in which Americans live in Mexico, since Mexico can't protect them, we can take the territory. The argument he makes to the British is a variation on the governance issue, which is that since British citizens are not democratic, they, they have no representation in their own government, therefore the government has no legitimacy, and we can take the territory as, as a way of better serving their population than they can. That's a pretty radical argument, right? And if you think about the War of 1812, for example, where we fight the British, what we are demanding is to be treated by the rules on which everybody else is treated. What makes the Oregon crisis the warning shot of what the United States might become is we're saying there is no legitimacy to the existing rules of the international order. That, that what we represent is in fact a nobler, more virtuous form of government and that trumps state sovereignty. The British obviously consider this a very dangerous precedent, especially because the Oregon Trail was gonna solve this problem, right? If you had waited 15 more years, there would be 12 British citizens and tens of thousands of Americans. So, so there wasn't an urgent, people weren't, the urgency was political in nature and opportunistic in nature. Um, the British were fearful of this kind of revision, but they were also fearful that Polk's argument would get resonance in Britain. And it did, actually. The Chartists, the people arguing for electoral reform in Britain, actually make the extraordinary gesture of supporting America's right to the Oregon Territory. And so unique among states in the international order, the United States could pose a domestic threat to British governance. And that's what has the British so worried. Um, 
The British play this very smart uh, because they're, they don't want a crisis that's actually going to make their, that's going to resonate in their domestic politics. So they offer to have another government mediate between the two of us. President Polk refuses that, saying there is no other government that could possibly be fair to us because we are the only people's republic in the world. So nobody else can even negotiate between us and Britain. We are that unique and different. Britain did something very smart at this point. They waited until we were at war with Mexico. <laughs> because once we were at war on our southern border, the, the challenge of fighting a two-front war against the strongest power of the international order, the British had actually put us in the position we put them in in the War of 1812. So once we were at war with Mexico, they started sailing 30 ships of the line towards, uh, towards New York Harbor. And President Polk records in his diary that Britain, Great Britain proves not altogether so pacific a character as the accounts given in the English newspapers had led me to believe. And he agrees on what was always going to be the main, the likely boundary, which was the direct extension of the 49th parallel that had been the boundary out to the Rocky Mountains. Um, for Britain, it was a moment to be savored, right? Their territorial claims were sustained. America gets put in her place because Polk has to fold. Um, and it appeared to devalue the democratic argument, right? Um, but of course, uh, it doesn't look like that for very long. This is what it looks like to the British. You can see it's several years later. It's 1885, because that's Grover Cleveland. This is a cartoon from during the Venezuelan debt crisis in 1885. But you'll see that what the United States looks like to Britain hasn't changed much, right? We're strong enough to twist the tiger's tail. But look at all these drunks and reprobates over here, right? All those demagogues and ne'er-do-wells. So the British don't like us as late as 1885. And what the Oregon crisis does for British-American relations is alarm the British that the United States, when it gets strong enough, is going to be a law unto itself. And that force is needed, superior military force is needed to box in this American aggressiveness. But also what they really fear is that this claim of superior legitimacy by a representative government is uniquely able to play in their domestic politics. And it makes them uh, very hesitant to counter us. You see it play through uh, in the subsequent 40 years as the British declined to recognize the Confederacy during our Civil War, uh, as the British continue to, to be the enforcers of the Monroe Doctrine, as they make all sorts of concessions to us through as the Venezuelan debt crisis and other things occur. But then we get to 1898, which is the second example I want to talk about. It's the Spanish-American War. Um, and there are lots of misconceptions about the Spanish-American War. This is one of my favorites. Right, that a newly strong Uncle Sam just can't resist getting its hands on Cuba. 
Um, one of my favorite historians, James A. Field, argues that the worst chapter in any book of American history is always the chapter on the Spanish-American War. And I think he's exactly right. Because, um, you know, the, the caricature is that this is America asserting its power beyond its territory. That, you know, the vision is, is Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders, right? What a splendid little war. Um, but in fact, and of course, there's no threat to the United States, right? Nobody thinks what's happening in Cuba is a danger to us. Um, so the caricature is of the Spanish-American War as sort of the debutante ball of America as a rising power. It's our coming out party. And that all these war lovers and yellow journalism that it feeds on. And this is actually um, not true in all sorts of ways. The, a, a sounder way to think about what's happening is that the Spanish-American War, our involvement in the Spanish-American War is a continuation of the Cuban and Philippine insurgencies against Spain. Um, and that President McKinley gets pushed into this. He doesn't jump. And what pushes him are two things. First, the genuinely shocking depredations of the Spanish government against Cubans who were considered Spanish citizens. So unlike the British, who did not consider Indians to be British citizens, they were colonials. Spain didn't make that distinction. These are Spanish citizens, and they rounded them up by tens of thousands and put them in internment camps, and they died by the thousands. Um, the President McKinley denounces this as extermination rather than civilized warfare. Um, but even then, in that exact same speech in which he is denouncing Spain's behavior towards its citizens, he also says that America intervening to control Cuba would be criminal aggression. Right? That's not the sound of somebody lurching towards glory. Um, and that, but again, the United States, as in the case of the Oregon boundary crisis, we are making a revisionist claim in the international order, which is, again, it sounds normal to American ears. It was an anomaly in the year of our Lord, 1898, that people have rights, and they loan them in limited ways to governments. Right? So we were arguing that the behavior of the Spanish government towards the people of Cuba and the Philippines was such an affront that they lost the legitimate right of a sovereign power. Um, and that humanitarian grounds were a reasonable basis for overthrowing government control of the country. Just to give you a sense about how this was received, here's the German government's reaction. This notoriously disreputable republic has the assurance to pose as a censor of the morals of European monarchies. It is an outrage that must be put down. Um, Britain, you might think, would see an, the support of an insurgency in a rebellious colony to be contrary to their interests, as they were an empire on which the sun never sets. But they did not. They agreed with Spain and Germany and Italy that they would remain neutral. Um, this was a great gift the British gave us, which was ensuring that France, Italy, 
and Germany would not enter the war on the side of the Spanish. So British neutrality was, in fact, a, an act of favoritism towards the United States. And the British government privately told us uh, that, that, in fact, they would give us all the help we needed. So uh, even, in, even with that advantage, McKinley's policy was measured. He, he wanted mediation. He threatened to recognize the belligerents, which would give them some legal standing in the international order. Um, and uh, he did get an agreement with Spain that mediation would go ahead. But again, you have these tens of thousands of Cubans who are essentially in concentration camps in which they are not being fed and, and they're dying by the thousands. And they start riots. The Cubans start riots in the camps. And it was because it looked like such chaos that President McKinley sent a ship called the USS Maine to Havana Harbor. And the Maine gets sunk. 260 Americans die with the sinking of the Maine. It becomes a rallying cry for American involvement. Um, interestingly enough, uh, the father of the nuclear navy in the 1950s did an did a, um, a investigation into what sunk the Maine. Uh, and it turns out it was its own ammunition exploding. Um, but even after the USS Maine was sinking, uh, McKinley tried to get an armistice, tried to end the concentration camps, offered to distribute American aid in conjunction with Spanish authorities so we weren't undercutting them. Um, and, and the Spanish basically didn't respond. And it was congressional outrage after the Spanish uh, rebuke that had House Speaker Thomas Beckett Reed come to the president and tell him that unless the president declared war on Spain, Congress would do it without him, which was a major constitutional challenge. Um, Congress obviously has never declared war, that the president didn't ask for it. Um, so McKinley goes to the Congress with a request for the authorization of the use of military force. And just for contemporary comparison's sake, here's what McKinley's request said that Congress authorize and empower the president to take measures to secure a full and final termination of hostilities. In case you want to grade President Obama's, I offer that as what they ought to sound like. Um, Congress, however, only gave the president the authorization of war in, with an amendment uh, offered by, by Platt from Nebraska, I think, which was that the United States could assist in Cuba's uh, independence from Spain, but the United States must not have permanent control of the island. And that gives you a sense, actually, about even when Congress was all worked up over the sinking of the Maine, how hesitant the American government actually was uh, to get involved in the Spanish-American War. So, uh, so, so most of the, of the fun and games about us running off to war to become a great power are actually not true. Let me shift to the, what we get in the war, though, because this is really important in America's arising power. The action in the West, the battle for Cuba, 
is the part of the Spanish-American War that gets all the attention, right? Because, first of all, it's nearby, so journalists can easily go visit. There are all these colorful characters, the Rough Riders, and of course, that's where the, mo the greatest outrages were being perpetrated. But just like the American Civil War, the Eastern theater gets most of the attention. The Western theater is the one that's genuinely strategic in the weight of the war. And what you see, all those lovely little red dots, are former Spanish possessions that the United States takes as a result of the collapse of Spanish control. And this, more than anything else, is what catapults the United States uh, forward as an international power. It made a certain amount of sense to tie the Spanish fleet down in the Philippines. Right? Where are the Philippines? Right? So, so nations at that time had to have fleets for different oceans. There's no Panama Canal for another 15 years. So both we and the Spanish, what was in the Pacific was going to be in the Pacific, no matter what was happening in the Caribbean. But just as a sort of insurance policy, you, in case the war should drag on, um, you want to tie them down. So what began as a tactical war measure actually became a strategic redirection. And Admiral Dewey, Commodore Dewey at the time, uh, was a smart enough man to, to play the game of asymmetric warfare, which is how people who win wars typically play it. And he threatened Spain's other possessions in order to worry them that they should not concentrate their forces in the Caribbean. He made very quick work of it, right? He didn't lose a single ship, and in the course of a day, the entire Spanish fleet was on the, on the floor of Manila Bay. Um, the Germans, however, intervene at this point in time. So the German Kaiser claimed that they would not permit America to defeat Spain, and he sends a really insulting telegram to Theodore X, uh, to McKinley, uh, saying that the United States would be forced not just to face Spain in Manila Harbor, in Manila Bay, but also face Germany, which got a good laugh in the White House when they got it because the Spanish were already on the bottom of the bay. Um, but Germany had a superior fleet to Dewey's. Uh, so Germany coming into the war is actually a big deal for us and puts all this at risk. Uh, he had five men of war, two with greater displacement than anything in Dewey's fleet in Manila Bay, and he also had 1,400 infantry. The Germans started sounding the harbor. They resupplied the Spanish ashore. They started building a naval base at Subic Bay. Britain is actually what saves Dewey's fleet in the Philippines. Although they were formerly neutral, um, and preoccupied with the Boer War going on in South Africa, um, the British give us what Dewey describes in his memoirs as the material assistance necessary to win this fight. Um, the extent of British assistance isn't all that well known, but one of the reasons all these islands in the Pacific matter so much is that they're coaling stations for steamships. Ships could only carry, could only go as far as the coal they had to propel themselves. And so you have to do island hopping. Um, the British closed their coaling stations to all Spanish shipping um, and not to the United States, which is a violation of their neutrality pact. 
they let us spy on the Spanish from Gibraltar, a British possession, so that we would know where the Spanish fleets were headed. They allowed us to use the cable, the Trans-Pacific Cable that they had strung from Hong Kong, which is how McKinley knew that the Spanish fleet was already on the bottom of the ocean when the Germans were going to join the fight. Um, they gave us landing craft. They even allowed British sailors to serve on American ships. So what we went to war with Britain over in 1812, they gave us as a gift in 1898. Um, and when the German and American ships of the line line up in Manila Bay, Dewey instructs the British to move their ships out of what is going to be the firing range. And the British Navy sailed their ships into the American line. That is, the Germans could not fire on American ships without going to war with Britain as well. Um, it was extraordinary. The New York Times uh, get, concluded that we are fighting England's battles in Cuba as England is fighting our battles in the East. The French government, on the Spanish side, had a different perspective. Great Britain is the hypocritical partner of the United States. Their alliance against Spain is a disgrace, but it is just as well to have them work together now, since together they will have to render an account to international justice. What happens with British assistance to the United States during the Spanish-American War is a sense of fraternity, a sense of commonality, a sense not just of shared interests and of shared rules in the international order, but a genuine affection. And let me, it gets summed up by Chamberlain, not the Neville of Munich, Joseph Chamberlain, who was the British colonial minister. He gives a speech to working men in Birmingham in 1898, uh, justifying what Britain had done in the war. Our purpose is to establish and maintain bonds of permanent amity with our kinsmen across the Atlantic. I do not know what arrangements may be possible with us. The United States had turned down in 1870 a British offer of alliance. But I do know and feel that the closer, the more cordial, the fuller, and the more definite these arrangements are with the consent of both parties, the better it will be both for us and for the world. And I even go so far to say that terrible as war may be, even war itself would be cheaply purchased if in a great and noble cause the Stars and Stripes and the Union Jack should wave together over an Anglo-Saxon alliance. The First Lord of the Admiralty, Selburn, uh, takes it even further and testifies in defense of the Royal Navy's budget that war with the United States would be the greatest evil which could befall the British Empire. This is what we look like, not just to ourselves, but to the British after the Spanish-American War. Right? Look at that lovely gal wearing a Navy hat of world power. Um, and the keys of the kingdom on the eagle on her belt. So what happens? How do you get from the Britain of the Oregon crisis to the Britain that, that goes here? You get democracy in Britain, first of all. So the people who are America's natural allies in any society are the aspiring middle classes, right? They're the people who's, who 
in any society are the ones that our creed resonates with most. And what happens in Britain in 1830 and 1865 is the progressive democratization, all those urban laborers in Manchester and in Birmingham and other places, not only do we resonate with them, but we openly work. Lincoln writes them letters during the Civil War, making the case um, for why they should support the Union. You also have a Britain that becomes concerned about the weight of its overseas empire. And you have this extraordinary rapprochement between the peoples of the two countries. The United States also changes. You have the end of slavery. Um, we, like Britain, are early adapters to the Industrial Revolution, so we both favor open markets because we are the people who have the productivity advantages. Um, and in the 1880s, the American, America becomes concerned about economic stagnation. With the close of the American West, how are we going to have jobs for all these people? We need markets. We need trade. Um, and that's what drives them together. This notion of Anglo-Saxons is actually the product of this rapprochement. It's not the cause of it. We're not naturally British allies. We come to think of ourselves that way. And the person who's most surprised by this is the German chancellor, Bismarck. Right? Many of you know this. He famously said, that he couldn't, that colonization of North America was the most important fact of modern history. And, and he can't really understand why it is that Britain and the United States end up so friendly, because he thought Germany and the United States would. Remember, at this time, 20% of Americans speak German in their home. Um, and Bismarck said he, the only explanation he can come up with is luck. And he famously says in 1898 after the war that God has a special providence for drunks, babies, and the United States of America. <laughs> um, so, so what does this history mean for us today, where we are looking at a world of potential rising powers, where America is very concerned about whether our advantages are sustainable in the international order? The first thing that I think that I conclude from this is that values are a form of power. And for the United States, they are an enormous and structural advantage that we have over other countries. Because as in the case of Britain, we can play in the domestic politics of other countries to a much greater degree than other people have that other states have that ability with us. The the aspiration of our political creed and of being one generation safely in the middle class in this country are enormous advantages. And no other potential hegemon uh, actually has that kind of magnetism. And that's going to make it much harder for other countries to displace us. The second thing that I conclude from this is that convergence actually is essential for why the British, the difference between the British in 1844 and the British in 1898. What, what we political scientists would say is that the relative power matters less because of the convergence. So they feel like us, we feel like them, and we feel different from everybody else around. So we can trust them uniquely, and they can trust us uniquely. That's what you hear in Joseph Chamberlain talking in 1898. The exclusivity also mattered, 
right? Not just that we were like each other, but that nobody else was like us. And this is um, a talk for another day, but, but that's the end of the book, which is that it's a very narrow period of time in which Britain has an exclusive draw on us. By the end of World War I, the United States feels itself powerful enough to again want to rewrite the rules of the international order. And that happens in a way that is detrimental to Britain and advantageous to people who were not living under governments they elected. Um, the last thing I would say about this is that none of the things that made for British and American safe passage from British hegemony, dominance of the order to America, none of those apply between the United States and China. They potentially apply with Mexico or India, but you would have to have a very different China or a very different United States for any continued rise of China to remain peaceful. And I'm done now. I'll be glad to take your questions. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, and Stitcher. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Chris Dower. Thank you for listening.